Just a quick note before we jump into this episode. This summer, Dan and I will be taking a break. We'll spend time with our families and attend workshops and conferences to continue growing as leadership educators. Our plan is to release four episodes this summer, but we'll see what happens in the world. Thanks for listening to this episode, and we invite you to check out some more you might have missed during the year or revisit some of your favorites. Educator Podcast. I'm Lauren Bullock, Assistant Professor of Instruction at Temple University. And I'm Dan Jenkins, Chair and Associate Professor of Leadership and Organizational Studies at the University of Southern Maine. And we are both thrilled for this episode of the podcast. We're joined today by Dr. Sanja Ardwa. Welcome. Thank you so much. I appreciate the time and being able to be with you all on the podcast today. Yeah, we're so excited to, to have you here. So in the past year, we've invited a few guest editors of the issues of the amazing New Directions for Student Leadership series. Um, we've had Drs. Mark Hurwitz and Rachel Thompson on to share their perspectives on their followership education issue. We had Dr. Carrie Priest on uh, to share some of her experiences working with me on the issue uh, we co-edited on becoming and being a leadership educator. And we've had Drs. Chris Soria and Matt Thompson on to discuss their issue on evidence-based practices and leadership development. Uh, so we're super excited uh, when uh, Dr. Susan Kamavez and, and Kathy Guthrie reached out to us because they co-edit the New Direction series. And they asked us to engage in a partnership around promoting new issues of the series as they're released. Uh, so some of those episodes are available. Well, some of the episodes before these three issues are available through the uh, NASPA Student Leadership Programs Knowledge Community podcast. Um, and we have the fortune of uh, meeting with these editors going forward. So I share all of that because uh, Sanja and Kathy recently edited the uh, spring 2021 issue number 169 titled Leadership Learning Through the Lens of Social Class. And that's why we've got Sanja on with us today. So Sanja, since it's your first time on the show, can you please share a little bit about yourself with our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, my name is Sanja. I use she, her pronouns. I am from uh, a town in sort of South the southern central part of the state of Louisiana. Um, the name of the town is Vidrine, Louisiana. You will probably not find it on a map. It does not have a zip code, but it is home to me forever and always. I am a first-generation college graduate times three, and I'm very proud uh, of my first-generation college student status um, that I had the opportunity to pursue education uh, from where I was from and that my family supported me in that in the ways that were possible to them. So um, have had uh, some great fun earning degrees at LSU, Florida State and NC State um, and was a primarily a practitioner uh, in student affairs for about 10 years before I shifted over to the faculty in 2015. So I'm entering my seventh year as a faculty member, I think if that math is correct, um, and sort of consider my role as a scholar practitioner or a new word that has entered my life in the last year, which is pracademic, which I heard and then read and then have heard again. So uh, that's sort of how I identify um, really as a learner and an educator. That, that is awesome. So I, I've got to know, is your hometown anywhere near Homa, Louisiana? It is north of Homa. So between Lafayette and Alexandria. Um, so if you want to 
we're an hour from anything basically, but Lafayette and Ellick were our closest quote unquote cities. Okay. I got to go to a wedding once in Homa. Um, and I was the best shrimp bar I've ever been to in my life. And I learned a ton about what folks do in that part of uh, down in the bayou and, yeah. and uh, gosh, the food was just out of this world, out of this yes. world. Very good, but not always good for you. <laughs> no, no, no. They're more. Th- it, if it wasn't boiled, it was fried. So. Yes. <laughs> it's it's a blessing to know someone from Louisiana, especially when it comes to food. The 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 cuisine down there is uh, absolutely amazing. So uh, Sonja and I have a mutual friend from our t- from Florida State. We recently learned we were there at the same time, and um, our friend from Louisiana, who's her friend from Louisiana. Um, me being an up north Yankee from New Jersey, it, it was introduced to crawfish and crawfish boils, and mm-hmm. you know wondered where I where where I had gone wrong in my life that I had missed this. So mm-hmm. I feel like you know the wedding when you said that the shrimp boil shrimp buffet was amazing. I felt it in my spirit because I felt the same way when I got invited to my first crawfish boil, which mm-hmm. I, I didn't know. Nobody told me. Yes, it's a whole process of not only learning how to cook it, but learning how to eat it if you have never peeled a crawfish before. I don't like to fight my food in general, just a general <laughs> principle, but I will fight a crawfish because it is absolutely delicious. Um, that, and I also love that you said you're a pracademic because one of the things I like now is, especially like, so I'm going through my doctoral program and just, and teaching as well is it's all about, you know, learning the theory and understanding it, but then also thinking about how can we use it for more and to do good things? Like it's not enough to just learn and read and publish, mm-hmm. but kind of what are we doing with the information that we have? Um, and so it, it, it kind of leads me into this question for you, mm-hmm. just centered around, so, you know, in the editor's notes, you and Kathy share how this issue derived from your academic interests as well as your personal background. Can mm-hmm. you you know share a little bit about that with our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So actually this issue derived from sort of a conference meeting. So Kathy and I have sort of been associated with each other because she's at Florida State. I'm an alum of Florida State. We have similar interests. We were connected through Leadership, which is a national nonprofit organization. Um, and so she sat down next to me at like a breakfast and was like, Hey, I have this thought. What do you think? And so we sort of sketched it out like on a napkin or a notepad or, and so it was really rooted in the fact that we have sort of these similar upbringings, right? She's from, you know, a rural area. I'm from a rural area. We sort of both grew up with sort of working class, um, mentality and our families and those sorts of pieces. And so that's really the lens we bring, uh, sort of the leadership, both in scholarship and in practice is thinking about, how is this different through different social class lenses, through different backgrounds? So I grew up thinking about leadership as my grandparents who have middle grades education, who were farmers in the community and were volunteers in their community, right? They trade and bartered with other farmers. They signed up to volunteer. They had sort of people they would go play cards with, right? And so my parents also, my, my dad was a volunteer firefighter. My mom volunteered at the, the Catholic church in our town. We identify as Catholic. And so all of those things to me were leadership. And it was, di- it was different or interesting when I got to college or and, and even in high school, but more so in college when people were sort of defining leadership differently, that you had to have these certain experiences or things or titles uh, in order to be a leader. And that's not how I grew up understanding leadership. And so there was a dissonance there for me. And so being able to explore different forms of leadership and how leadership in higher education, but in broader society as well, is sometimes a class-based construct. Um, And so it really did derive from our own experiences and how we wanted to 
include social class in the conversation because I think um, sometimes it is not included generally, but specifically when we talk about leadership learning and leadership development and education, social class is not sort of the first identity dimension that comes to mind for people and maybe it's one they want to avoid uh, talking about altogether. Yeah, I love that you shared that. It makes me think about professionalism. Like I, I have colleagues yes. who say, oh, this student isn't acting professionally. And, and I'm like, but they they don't know. Like I was lucky. My mom was a secretary. So she, I don't know how she did it through osmosis, but she kept things very organized and very, uh, had a system. Like when she was sending my letters to school, she'd type them up on the typewriter. So mm-hmm. like she was, she ingrained it in my brother and my sister and I from a young age, but I only knew because before she became a stay-at-home mom, she took so much pride in that. But when I think about my students, they don't know. I mean, like their parents don't all work in offices. And even if they do, they're just not aware of this. And so I know a few years back, I consciously had to stop assuming that students knew what professionalism was and start leading with that curiosity. Like, hey, or, you know, have you worked in an office before? Okay, this is going to be your first experience. Like I was in a student affairs for about 10 years. And my student workers would come in and say, okay, this is how you conduct yourself. And I wouldn't just hire the person who had office experience or assume that they even knew what it was. It was okay. This is this, you're going to work and do some work, but you're also going to learn some things that are going to help you no matter if you go on to be an accountant or in real estate or a scientist, like you still have to have that concept. And it, it all comes from social class, like how you're, what you're, your parents' income, like your family background, all of that stuff, Lizard. So I love that you shared that that's kind of the lens where you see this and where and how your farming background kind of plays into this research. Yeah. And I wonder too, sometimes like as we think about sort of professionalism, like who gets to define that, right? And there's yeah. been some interesting critiques um, about that, like whether it's popular opinion pieces or there was one in Everyday Feminism several years ago um, or other sorts like the student affairs space is sort of critiquing this in some components right now as well. And so it's, Number one, who gets to define what professionalism is? Number two, like who gets to define what is professional? Like what yeah. is a profession, right? So yeah. like air conditioner for duration is a profession, but you operate very differently in that sphere than you do in higher education or on Wall Street or wherever. And so that's another interesting piece to this is sort of who gets to decide what is appropriate decorum and, and why. Yeah, I, it, it, you bring up a great point in student affairs. If you're a student activities coordinator, you're probably hugging your students and it's not inappropriate. However, if you go and work at like KPMG, odds are you're not hugging your coworkers. Like, it, you know, it's just a different, you're not hugging your interns. It's a totally different, inappropriate dynamic. But I also think that it speaks to this awareness that we're creating in leadership. Even just questioning the the idea of professionalism is something new and people are pushing back. Like, of course, this is right. And it's like, oh, but let's take a step back and really think about where people are coming from and how even college serves as this transition from home to the workplace or to a larger, broader community where you become this citizen. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's an interesting kind of road to go to go down. And we were joking about this uh, in the spring as I was slowly trying to get myself through uh, Barbara Kellerman's professionalizing leadership book. Um, but one of her major um, theses in the in the book is this idea of okay, so if truck drivers or hair or hairdressers need you know have to go through this number of hours or pass these certain types of tests or exams, like what's the decorum that 
we hold ourselves to and the things that we need to, I guess, you know, press upon ourselves or, or prove or, uh, or, or uh, competencies that we need to advance ourselves. Like how do becoming a leader, being leadership or being a leader as a profession, like what does that, what does that mean? What does that consist of? And so I see a lot of just kind of overlaps between the, the dialogue y'all were having back and forth and kind of this, this direction that, that uh, Kellerman's really kind of trying to push the industry um, into thinking about as we're trying to, develop standards or principles or, or what have you, or even just some type of common curriculum amongst curricular and co-curricular leadership programs, you know, in the, in the U S and, and abroad. Mm-hmm. So, well, so, so Sanjay, I'm curious. So, you know, you talked a little bit about where the idea for the, uh, for the issue came from. Um, one of the things I noticed too, in, in some of the editor's notes and throughout the issue. Um, so you and Kathy also share that this issue offers some frameworks and, and lenses um, for leadership educators and specifically some lenses through which leadership educators can conduct what you call critical class focused examination and then provide some methods by which leadership educators can offer more social class equity through leadership learning. So could you mm-hmm. explain to our listeners and to me, uh, what do you mean by <laughs> what do you mean yep. by both of those constructs, critical class focused examination and then offering more social class equity through leadership learning? Yeah, absolutely. So I do a lot of writing around social class identity generally, right? So Kathy, I would say, is more of a leadership expert in this scenario, um, and I bring some of the the social class lens, writing, scholarship, et cetera. And so what I draw from a lot in my writing is William Liu's social class worldview model. Uh, William Liu's at Maryland, done a lot of work around like psychology, and has a book called Social Class uh, and the Helping Professions, something to that effect. If you Google it, you will find it. But And the social class worldview model that is sort of reintroduced in that book because there's a 2004 article and then there's a 2011 book really points to the fact that social class is more than just money. So I think oftentimes we think about social class in reference to income or in reference to SES or those sorts of things. And that is part of it, but it's not the whole of it. And so having people understand that it's not just that they have to pay to go to a leadership conference or that they have to pay to join this organization that's going to teach them leadership skills or pay extra to take a leadership minor or whatever. Like that's obviously a barrier for some folks. But even if you said it was all free, there are still barriers related to cultural capital, social capital. So you can sort of draw from some materials, community cultural wealth work there. Um, But having people sort of understand that it's more than just income and what else is it? Uh, And so that social class worldview model helps us start to think more broadly about what social class is and how it influences uh, people's feelings, ways of being, ways of doing, and how that may or may not align with sort of the what we have normed as leadership constructs um, in the United States or more or more globally as well. And so that is sort of the piece we bring there. And then Stevens et al. have this interesting cultural mismatch theory, uh, which is really under helping us understand that higher education, as we should know, if we work in higher education, I would hope most people know this, um, was created for folks who are more affluent, right? Uh, middle and upper class individuals, those ways of being and doing. And so there is a mismatch, right? So if we have created higher education for this particular population, but we know more students from poor and working class backgrounds are entering higher ed, then we're sort of creating this mismatch because we've created this space that is mostly focused on independent norms. That's what the theory is talking about, uh, that it's sort of individual, uh, do-it-yourself, individual success, those sorts of things. And a lot of folks who are coming from poor and working class backgrounds have more of a interdependent sort of collectivist community-based nature. And so those things can be intention, uh, especially if we are framing leadership as hierarchical positional one person uh, versus leadership as thinking about it more from 
um, a community-based, almost collectivist, in some ways, advocate or activist sorts of roles. Um, and so I think that there's some tension there. So that cultural mismatch theory helps us examine what exists and how is that existing for certain populations and in tension with sort of the ways other populations are thinking about or, or developing in or activating um, leadership from their frames. And then we finally layer that with um, Bertrand Jones, Guthrie, Osteen et al., uh, the culturally relevant leadership learning model, because that allows us to think about, okay, if we know social classes, all these things, and we know there's some tension around people from different social classes and how they enter higher ed and experience leadership, education, and development, what do we do? Uh, and so the, CR, the CRLL model really lets us look at how do we turn this into practice and really take these sort of critiques, right, and derive them as insights into here are ways that we can open up uh, leadership learning um, in higher education or completely scrap it and, and sort of start over uh, so that it can be more inclusive of different ways of um, thinking about and doing leadership. It, it sounds like it, it's a very good connector from like diversity to inclusion, like not to oversimplify, yes, but it's more or less yes. like, you know, that you yes. have students from these backgrounds. And so you want to make sure that they're considered in these spaces. And so this is a way to get a better understanding of how you can consider them or invite the right people in those spaces and really honor the voices and opinions that they're bringing to the table. Um, yeah. I know now we're in this space where everybody wants to, to do right and they're looking around like, I don't know what to do. And it feels like a really good game plan for how you can take action. Like, you know, I got it. Here's kind of, so here's where you can start or the questions you should be asking. Yeah, that, I really appreciate that framing, Lauren. And I think even ho hoping to push people towards equity as well to say, if we know, right, we have created these barriers because we've created them. It's not the students or colleagues or whoever is engaging in those developmental experiences, then how do we undo those barriers? Um, remove them, recreate processes, whatever that might look like, uh, so that it's not, we're not sort of... Um, recreating the same lens and understanding of leadership, because that doesn't just hurt the folks who, from poor working class backgrounds who can't access those types of learning. It also then um, continues to sort of reaffirm what other folks may have believed. And so it sort of furthers the hegemony is the word that's coming to my mind. That's not the word. Like it's a hundred dollar word. And I don't want to use a hundred dollar word. A fancy but... word. That's outside <laughs> of my social class. That's a good word. It's because I talked about it yesterday in this training that I did. And so it's like top of the mind, but it's essentially like recreating what people already believe. Right. Yeah. And so if we create these processes of leadership learning that just feed independent beliefs about leadership, then when anybody tries a more interdependent or collectivist form of leadership, people are going to say, that's not leadership. That's not how I know it. That's not how I've been taught it. Well, you know, and it's interesting. I think, I think you make such a good point because we're seeing a lot of this in practice. Like I, I, but I, but I think, I feel like in general where the conversation is around is just getting to equity. And I think what we've seen this last year, especially in the pandemic is that people are pushing for justice, which yeah. is an even higher level. Like now it's DEIJ and that's yeah. that last piece where it's not just enough. It's this, this command or demand that you do and you do now because you're already kind of late to the game where you should have been. Um, mm -hmm. I feel like all of this is fresh in my mind. I taught leading diverse teams in the summer one. And then I just went to a DEI conference last week where they were having some good discussions about, um, about kind of what's out there now and kind of what's coming down the pipeline. Mm -hmm. um, do you have like an example of maybe how even your own work in this has helped you or, or maybe in your just conversations with Kathy, like, is there a specific, like, specific activity or example or something that comes to mind around this work for our leadership educators who are like, yep, I'm on it. 
kind of now what do I do? Yeah, so I think there's been some um, interesting movement in some like student organizations on college campuses that I think are really have really been student driven that say we don't want to have a traditional hierarchical positional structure in our organization. And it, and that has been tough, I think, for some folks who are advisors to student organizations or who run like registration or recognition for student orgs in higher education because they say, well, that's what our system is set up for. Our system is set up for um, what is the word I'm looking for? Uh, constitution, like student org constitutions. And we have to have certain officers that go in our online software system. And that's who we contact. And uh, when students are saying, no, nah, we want this sort of collectivist form. And they're saying, what well, doesn't fit? So you're just gonna have to elect people and put them in those spots uh, versus saying, yeah, we support you. Like, let's talk about different ways that we lead communities and groups and that it doesn't have to be this positional hierarchical thing. And so I think that that new way of thinking about some forms of leadership, I think, are creating challenges for folks who are sort of running the processes by which these organizations function at our institution. So that would sort of be one way. Um, I think as I've been, like I have taught some leadership classes primarily to master students, but years ago to undergraduate students as well. Um, and having them really start to think about the assets that they have learned from their social class background, particularly if they're coming from poor and working class backgrounds, sometimes you think, well, I have to change all of these things to fit into the expectations of what people assume leaders to have. Um, and having them start to think, actually, you've learned all these amazing things from your poor or working class background that can be advantages to you as you think about different ways of leading. And so whether that is, I've learned to be really creative, right? Because I didn't have the same access to resources or opportunities. And so you know, I can make something out of nothing. And that is a great leadership sort of capacity to be able to harness, but helping folks identify some of those things, not as deficits, but as assets. Yeah. Well, it sounds like, well, two things come to mind with your comments. The first part is I know the, when the board of trustees hears that they're not going to get the student government president, like a non-voting, but member, but, but a participant. And they're like, wait, these students want a, a council and they don't, I know that that's definitely something that's really pushing the envelope. And it's, it's then that the leaders are tasked with, do we change for this, like, is this a trend and do we change or is this something long-term that's going to be sustainable that is required just for the necessary organizational change? I, I would love to see a forward-thinking university like that. Um, I think the second thing is, it also sounds like as leadership educators, our examples don't often always have to come from practice. Meaning, I like, so you talked about how, you know, your uh, leadership, you thought of your grandparents as leaders. When I first started my grad program, they had us write this leadership reflection essay. And mine was, was, you know, student government president at the satellite campus of a large public institution and was involved in these organizations. And my advisor, my evaluator pushed it back and said, no, this isn't what we're talking about. And I got to my four, my great, two great, my two grandmothers and my two great grandmothers who flipped houses in the black women who flipped houses in like the 19. 40s and 50s who died with cash on hand like and and weren't a part of that poor black narrative and and I wouldn't have gotten there if they hadn't asked that question and pushed me to get past that so I think now we're moving into this space where we want you to bring those in those familial experiences, but we also want you to be mindful of the difference between family and home or family and work, um, and also how you can pull out the skills that you need for the workplace. Like you shouldn't treat your boss like your father or your mother. Um, however, there are some things that your parents have taught you that are very useful. And I feel like now college is kind of becoming that space where we're molding that and having that conversation 
which is different because we then we before were expecting professionalism from them. You know what I mean? Well, and I think the other part of that is like, even as we think about a college campus, like who are we considering a leader? Is it the president slash chancellor? Is it the custodial staff member who started the own, their own recycling program because there wasn't one at the university? Um, and so I think there are these, you know, Peter Margolda has a great book about that called The Lives of Campus Custodians, uh, which sort of illuminates the leadership capacity of um, custodial and ground staff on college campuses. But I think helping people sort of reframe things, because if we're only pointing to sort of this top of the org chart person, um, then we're doing a disservice to all the great ways people are contributing as members of their communities. Yeah, you know, my university does a really good job with that. So they have a values award program and anybody can be nominated, whether you're a custodian or the vice president of student affairs. And it's a it's a beautiful ceremony in that five people are chosen and the committee is made up of the people who won last year. And you hear these beautiful like there's one guy who he was a painter in housing and I don't say it to minimize his position at all, but he was a painter and he had, he'd saved three, three students from committing suicide. And, you know, and, and without him knowing them and seeing them on a regular basis, like who knows what have, what would have happened. And it's like, those are the stories that in, in, I'll say our, our vice president did a great job about sharing and making sure that it was understood that everybody was a part of the team and not surface level. Mm-hmm. Everybody was a part and, and he, year after year hearing stories like this about how we were all doing good work was so meaningful and so helpful so that then when you saw this person, you recognized and respected them, um, not just because they were in this awards community, but just because that was the the culture of the division of student affairs in that space. So, yeah, it's it's really about kind of where are you pulling from all of your experiences and then how are you then deciding how to use that either at work or in student government or in wherever you have an opportunity to have influence? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think. Hey, sorry, Dan, I feel like we've been on a roll. Y'all have a ball. Um, I'm enjoying watching the conversation. <laughs> Dan, fly on the wall. No, no, you, you had me thinking a lot about it's the experiences that, that folks have had, not the positions that folks have had. And you're talking, Lauren, about like this, you know, the essay that you wrote. And I just think it's so ingrained to us. Like, it's almost like, I would say like engendered into us of like, oh, so you want to apply to have this position on campus or run for student government. And when you, when you approach some of those opportunities, even if they're in front of you and you have access to them, it's, and you put yourself up there as, oh, well, I was the president of this, or I was, you know, you, you, you talk more about positions that you had versus experiences that you had, except some folks are able to, some folks are, have matured to a point where whether, you know, if we're going to use our leadership education, you know, uh, terminology, you know, thinking about our, our lid model, leadership identity development, and, and are we beyond leadership as, as positionality and as, as a position where folks that are extremely effective in getting themselves into some of these more competitive positions, particularly undergraduates, are those that can actually tell a story. And it's a story about an experience or a process learned or a lesson learned versus, you know, listing off things off of a resume or, or CV or, well, I guess they don't have CVs at that point, but listing off things that you've, um, that you've, that you've done and, 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 transferring that and, and trying to create that evolution or that like catharsis of, of like, we're not talking about positions, we're talking about experiences. And, and I think that, like, I'm curious, because I think that those are much better determining factors of leadership potential at, at all levels. It's, it's what have you done because of 
things that you've learned or positions that you've had, not just positions in names them in in name themselves. And I'm curious, like Sanjay, have you seen that conversation play out in your classes, or like in what ways have you seen that? you know, dialogued um, with, the, with the students that you work with, whether they be undergraduates or graduate students? Yeah, I think that there are, there is more movement, particularly as we see more sort of activism around sort of social justice and identity-based issues where folks are seeing it as collectivist movements. They're not seeing it necessarily as one person. And we want to give credit where credit is due, right? If there's a, you know, group of three folks who have started this movement, we want to give them credit, but also understanding that their influence then, right, sparked all these other things all across the country or the world um, and some of those pieces. So I think uh, we have, in some ways, generationally different ideas about what leadership is and how it is practiced. So I think that there are some pieces of that. Um, I think the other uh, point here is also to think about, it's, it's not even that you have to have a position to have influence, right? You can have a lot, like I think about, I often think about this from the frame of when I was um, a member of my undergraduate chapter of my sorority and the back of the row crew sometimes had more influence than anybody else in that room. And they didn't hold formal positions, but boy, did they have influence. Um, And so how are we thinking about it um, from a lens of contribution versus a lens of sort of title? Um, And so I think there's lots of people that can make contributions. People can start a community garden as a collectivist component to their neighborhood um, and not, maybe not one person did that, you know, it'd be a collective of folks who have done that. And that sort of has influence over the whole community because um, they are sort of reaping the benefits of what they literally of what they've sown. Um, but also maybe they're then sharing that uh, with other people in the community who don't have access to fresh foods or those sorts of things as well. So I think it's different ways of conceptualizing leadership. And I think we're starting to see that uh, with students as we see them being sort of activist focused or community oriented. Um, and some of those uh, different components. And it's this other piece that while we wrote, like the issue is focused, the NDSL issue is focused on social class, uh, the chapters also look at the sort of intersections of identity. So what does social class look like with race? What does it look like with gender? Um, Dr. Shaykid Brown, just uh, that we were just talking about positional leadership. She wrote the chapter on uh, sort of positional leadership and how do we reconsider that from a social class lens. So um, while we sort of center social class, we understand that you don't experience that in isolation of the other layers of your identity as well. Yeah, no, it's interesting you, you share the experience about uh, in your sorority. And I can certainly, so was a member of fraternity and, and thinking about, yeah, the power of, the, of that back row, whether they were former officers or just folks that have influence and that that's where they're going to position themselves in, in the room to have um, the type of influence that they want. And, you know, I, I didn't go into, into, into Florida State as an undergrad, wanting to join a fraternity, although my dad had been a member of a fraternity and they didn't have that chapter at Florida State. But it was because of a connection I had had in youth group as uh, as a high schooler that I ended up running into some um, of my friends from from this youth group on campus. And they said, hey, you should come over to the Halal House and check out this this fraternity. You know, there's a chapter of Alpha Epsilon Pi. Here's an invitation, whatever. And for me, it was, oh, well, this would be a way to, to meet some other like Jewish men on campus. I had no idea really what a fraternity was other than I went to like a, a, a softball game with my dad when I was like five with other people that he had graduated with. And I was like, oh, so it's just a bunch of guys that like drink beer and like play softball together. Like, okay, that sounds kind of fun, but let me see what this is about. And like, you know, my, my parents did okay. I would say I grew up probably like middle, maybe middle-class, maybe upper middle-class, maybe, but like did certainly there were members of the, of the fraternity. I mean, there were members 
all over the, the spectrum, but you had to pay dues and things like that. And there were definitely some folks in that group that were just way beyond any type of, of upbringing that I had ever experienced with, you know, boats and jets and, and multiple houses and, you know, these types of things were in there. And it wasn't just the fraternity that I was in, there were fraternities all over campus that, you know, it was just a different social class. And, and I remember going out and trying to, you know, recruiting other, other members during like recruitment or what we used to call rush, but we don't call it that anymore. Um, but <laughs> see, y'all shaking your ass. Um, but, but I remember, interacting with somebody um, in one of the residence halls, which we used to call dorms, um, and, you know, talking to this individual. Um, Dan, they're and... going to take away your student affairs card. <laughs> I know, I You're going to get it taken away. People <laughs> having fun with me with the terminology. Um, but I remember this one particular interaction, and this and this this guy looked at us. He said, look, I can't I can't afford it. Y'all sound great, but this is not something. He said, I'm working, you know, and, and, and I worked all through, all through college, too, but it was some of these things where, like, this intersectionality of, like, okay, I want to connect, you know, I have this Jewish identity. I'm trying to connect with some other folks on campus that have this Jewish identity, um, you know, but I'm also having to work to, to go to school because I don't not don't have some of the privilege of some of my my peers that, that never had to work. Um, and and some of these other things that it, it's just it's so interesting to see all, all these dynamics as they overlay with the social class idea and the assumptions of social classes and some of these limited experiences that we have with some of these cross class interactions. And I just you know, I think I'm more kind of sharing than than having a question, but I'm curious if how you see that kind of um, evolving or kind of coming out in some of the conversations you're having with your students. Yeah, absolutely. So the, there's a chapter in the issue that specifically uh, Dan Bureau and some other uh, colleagues specifically focus on sort of fraternity and sorority experiences and social class and leadership. Um, so that um, would be one for folks who work in that area. If you're interested in reading more about that, they have some great thoughts on it. Uh, I would say, too, I've done some work with some um sort of international fraternity and sorority groups over the past couple of years um, for folks who want to talk about social class or and then pushing some things like uh, even things as we think about can we do dues on sliding scale um, people don't like that idea they think it's not fair what is not fair sometimes is equitable um, and so how are we thinking about all these pieces and then outside of the money piece how are we thinking about things like um, a lot of the fraternity and sororities have just changed their legacy policies so if you're not familiar if you're family member, um, certain family members were members of that organization, you would sort of get an advantage in the recruitment process and the membership selection process. Um, and so their sort of legacy policies are changing and they're doing away with some of those things because that's really like social capital in action um, and giving folks who have advantage further advantage. Um, and so some of that is being questioned. I think um, some pieces around how those organizations operate um, in terms of you know, if you come into an organization and the first thing they say to you is, oh, well, where do you spend your summer traveling? And you're like, nah, I was at the Dairy Queen, like pumping ice cream um, all summer long, right? Or my family doesn't take vacation. That's not sort of a way that we are able to live. Um, and so, so or like summer camp, right? Like I never like access to summer, like this whole summer camp phenomenon is like, like blows my mind. Um, and one of my friends stayed with me this summer because her children go to summer camp near my house in North Carolina. Um, and so then we had this big conversation around social class and camp and how does this camp culture then transfer into higher education and um, all of these different pieces. And so I think that there are lots of ways to sort of critique how we have done student involvement in higher education um, and how that is sort of laced to social class. And what does that mean? Right. So if we have a student who has a particular social class and religious identity, is there a space for them to explore both of those things on our campus? Um, and so I think taking a critical look at some of those things is important because sometimes we assume, well, students aren't involved because they don't want to be involved or because they have to work 40 hours a week. Well, it's really because we've created structures that don't allow for them uh, to be involved or make it really, really hard for them to do that. 
or they don't even know the value of that yes. involvement because all they're being told from their parents is go to, if you almost like if you go to college and graduate, you're going to get a job. And we know that it's way more comp- complicated than that. Um, I had this book on my heart called How to Take Advantage of College for that simple reason. And it, it's simply because I've said I have younger cousins in my family for the, for like 25 years straight, somebody was having a baby. So I have an enormous amount of first cousins. <laughs> yep. And well, I always talk to them about college and I say like the same three or four things. They sometimes listen, sometimes don't listen, but I'm floored because I'm like, but, but here's kind of like the holy grail of things to consider. One of them is you got to find some involvement somewhere, but you're right. Um, unless somebody with, especially with student of color, students of color, you got to hand walk them to whatever organization it is that you want them to join and hope that there's another person of color that they see so that they feel even included in that space. And I'm sure if you replace person of color with a, a bunch of different identities, you kind of get a very similar experience. Um, as a also though, as a mom whose child is in summer care camp now, I'll pay whatever you need me to pay <laughs> for that experience. Uh, all right. well, I, think uh, the, I think the other part to that too, though, is Lauren, is that as we think about, you know, is it really about you have to be involved in a certain thing, or is it about skill development? And how can we help students understand your work study? Your work study job is teaching you all these things around leadership, right? Or your job, you know, baking biscuits at the local restaurant is teaching you all these skills or your caregiver job for your siblings is teaching you all of these things. And so how can we also help people understand that they're gaining these competencies around leadership development and practice from all sorts of places? Uh, Because sometimes we can be a little snobby about where we think people can gain the skills and where they can. 9,000%. I I feel like it's this, this puzzle that you have to put together to graduate. And it's like that your end goal is, you know, gain a certain amount of knowledge, develop a certain set of skills, and then identify what you, what your purpose really is and what you really want to do to be a good citizen in this world. And, and everyone's puzzle looks different. Um, Dr. Valerie Sessa does some work around this and she talks a lot about kind of, is there a predictive pattern? Meaning if a student is a, a, or an RA on student government and has a full-time, has a part-time job, then they're more than likely going to feel comfortable their first two years of work um, in their workplace. And so I know she's done a lot of studies related to that, but you're right. It's, it's really kind of about putting together your, your person, your puzzle of college so that you meet these, these social and academic and professional outcomes that are associated with, with higher education. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I think I the, the same is true for master's and doctoral students as well, right? We often think about leadership learning from an undergraduate lens, but it's also happening at the um, graduate level as well in higher ed. Yeah, absolutely. So we asked you a bunch. We've said a lot today. <laughs> and our last question for every guest is always, is there anything else that we didn't ask you that you would like to share with our us and our listeners? I want to give major kudos to the chapter authors from this issue. Um, We stayed on track during a pandemic, during uh, significant uh, racial activism in the United States. Um, And these folks were committed to say, of all times, this is a time, right, when we need to talk about how uh, leadership can be practiced through different lenses, particularly as lenses related to identity. So um, I think the chapters are really great and meaningful, and we can gain a lot of, uh, from them. Um, and the folks uh, who wrote for us um, and wrote for the issue represent a lot of different identities. So they're also bringing all of those identities into their writing. And so I just want to give major credit to those folks for uh, really being champs uh, in this process, not only um, in producing things, but also uh, in sharing sort of pieces of themselves and how we can 
uh, really think about leadership learning differently in higher ed. Awesome. Yeah, no, it's it's such a thankless thing to be a contributing uh, author to any of these. In fact, I was working on a chapter right now um, that uh, right before we jumped on to, to this recording that I'm super excited about it and just love the directions. Um, no pun intended that uh, Kathy and, and Susan take, yeah. take the series. So, yeah. So, so, Sandra, again, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Um, that wraps up this episode of the Leadership Educator Podcast. Best of luck as you plan for the upcoming academic year. Thank you so much. Thanks for your time. We would love for you to follow us on Twitter. I'm at Dr. That's Dr. Underscore Leadership, and uh, Lauren is at M R S L A U R J B. That's Mrs. Laura J B. Um, and you can find the episodes wherever podcasts are available. And we also encourage you to subscribe and rate us five stars. As the more you rate us, the easier it is for others to find us. We'd also like to thank the James M. Cox Jr. Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management, and Leadership within the Grady College of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Georgia. The Support was facilitated by Dr. Keith Herndon, William S. Morris Chair in New Strategy and Management. And our wonderful theme music was composed, performed, and mixed by Dr. Matthew White, trumpeter, composer, and educator. And he's currently an associate professor of trumpet, coordinator of jazz and commercial music, and director of ensembles at Coastal Carolina University. You can check him out at www.mattwhitejazz.com. Matt, thanks so much for sharing your musical genius with our audience. And finally, thank you to the Association of Leadership Educators. Check out what ALE has to offer at leadershipeducators.org. We hope you'll listen to our next episode wherever you get your podcasts.